This is the sound of turning ideas into software. This is the sound of engineering and passion. Work. Work more. Work harder. Experiment. Build. Break. And build again. Write code. Improve it. Job done. Celebrate. Insurance. Finance. Retail. Defense. Robotics. Energy. Amethyx. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of uh, Amethyx Technologies based in Belgium. Today, I'm not alone, and uh, I'm going to discuss with uh, a very talented guy out there uh, about uh, artificial intelligence and cloud automation, uh, which is one of the most interesting topics uh, recently. Um, I'm speaking about uh, uh, Leon Cooperman, a co-founder and CTO at Cast AI, formerly Vice President of Security Products OCI at Oracle. Leon's professional experience spans across tech companies like IBM, uh, Truition, and hosted PCI. He has more than 20 years of experience in product management, software design, and development, all the way through to production deployment. So I think he's one of the best figures that we can expect to speak about AI and cloud automation. Hi, Leon. How are you doing today? Hey, Francesco, thank you for having me. So nice to speak to you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And I'm pretty sure that the followers of, uh, of this podcast, Data Science at Home, will uh, find our conversation pretty interesting because, uh, indeed, uh, artificial intelligence and cloud automation don't really seem to match, but we are going to explore uh, why, in fact, they are kind of related to each other and they can benefit from each other, in fact. Um, so the first thing I would like to do is, uh, well, introducing yourself to the to the listeners of the show. So please. Uh, so my name is Leon Cooperman. I'm currently the chief technology officer at Castia. I like to joke that I'm the chief plumber, sandwich maker, and whatever else we uh, we need at the moment. Um, it's a startup. Uh, we just uh, uh, completed a Series A uh, funding round uh, with a product market fit. So we have customers using our platform. Uh, that are seeing tremendous savings in their cloud infrastructure invoices or costs. And we have a very different philosophy uh, in terms of automating uh, automating out the costs of our customers, which we'll go, go into a lot of detail. And I uh, uh, pr prior to CAST, we kind of saw this problem evolving in many of our previous roles. So I, I've been working with our CEO for the last few companies, Yuri Freeman. And one of the kind of genesis ideas, Francesco, was that in our last company, which was called ZenEdge, we started deploying our infrastructure in AWS because we couldn't afford our own data centers. Obviously, it was uh, it, these days a startup tends to use cloud infrastructure as a first step uh, prior to any other type of infrastructure investment. It just makes the most economical sense. But one of the interesting phenomenons that we saw is as we were growing, we started with a few thousand dollar a month. AWS infrastructure bill. And by the time we sold the company, we were in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per month. And I would have this, this huge uh, point of contention with Yuri, our CEO, every single month was, or every quarter when we were doing the financials, why has our cloud bill grown so exponentially? Why can't you get your head around uh, this, this, this cost phenomenon? And as successful as we were from a customer adoption perspective, and we built a great product, we absolutely failed on, on cloud cost management. It was, it was a disaster. And I saw this theme repeat over and over, over several companies. Uh, 
And I kind of came to the conclusion kind of at the end of my uh, tenure at Oracle that this was the thing I wanted to do. I wanted to help other companies solve for this problem. And we had a couple of core first principle tenants. And the first one was we don't have enough humans to do the job manually. And I was failing at doing that job manually. We need automation to do the job. Uh, and, and machine learning is likely going to be a, a place where we can ap- apply machine learning to solve the problem. Well, definitely, uh, that's going to be where my top interest is, in fact, because I, I really would like to know much more about what AI machine learning can add or can bring to the table of, uh, you know, data engineering and DevOps problems, for sure. Um, so, I mean, I read, in fact, the tagline is amazing. Cut your cloud bills in half. That's the tagline of, uh, of Cast AI, which definitely intrigued me uh, and I believe will intrigue a lot of people out there. The thing is that if I perform some form of automation already, what does AI have to do with cutting the costs of my cloud? Yeah, it's a great question, Francesco. So you probably are performing automation and I can kind of roughly tell you the type of automation you're performing. So as a DevOps engineer, like you're probably already using things like auto-scaling technologies, right? So on AWS, for example, that would be using something called an auto-scaling group. And it's a conditional logic. So when my capacity gets to X, I want to add this much compute capacity to my cluster. By the way, Francesca, I should kind of mention up front, we decided to solve our problem for a very specific segment of the market. So Not all customer use cases are use cases we're going to be able to solve. Very specifically, we're looking at cloud native or Kubernetes technology. So we made a bet that anyone using Kubernetes is uh, a customer that will benefit from our technology. And the reason we did that is very machine learning specific. So when a machine learns to play a game, it needs very specific roles. Like, so for example, if you're learning to play chess or if you're learning to play Go, the machine benefits from the fact that there are concrete rules of the playbook, right? And when you have a very open-ended machine learning problem, which requires general AI, it's exponentially much more difficult problem. So if we're trying to solve for all application frameworks and all types of applications out there, it becomes a nearly impossible problem with what we have today in the industry. But when we look at Kubernetes, Kubernetes is a game. Like it has a defined set of roles, responsibilities, players, actors, actions that they can take. And we learn to play the game of Kubernetes on the cast side. And that's why we're very specifically focusing. We made a bet that eventually the world would get to cloud native over the next five to seven years or some derivative of Kubernetes. And that's what's really helped us define the problem. That That's incredible, uh, an incredible observation because in fact, you are narrowing down the problem to make it more, let's say mathematically approachable or feasible, right? From a, from a machine learning perspective, of course. Yeah, exactly right. Because the, the, the problem horizon is too broad if we don't do it, right? And we will end up with very generic solutions that do very little. And then what happens is, is that if you try to take too big of a bite from, that, from the stack, you end up with a recommendation engine because no one's comfortable taking an automation uh, recommendation unless it's highly specific to your environment. Right. So by doing by 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 employing our uh, ideas on Kubernetes specifically, we're not only able to make recommendations, which a lot of folks kind of do, but who's going to take those recommendations? What DevOps engineer is going to say, "Here's a recommendation. I should do this and risk getting woken up in the middle of the night." I, I would rather not take it. And so by 
making everything automated, we just make it the de facto standard mode of operation. I see. Well, I was going there because speaking of automation, I mean, what are the typical problems in the cloud that require automation the most? Because I believe that you guys are focusing primarily on these problems first and try to build a machine learning, reinforcement learning, I don't know, we will see that later, uh, approach to solve these you know, very specific problems. So what are these problems? Yeah, so I break those problems into day one problems and day two problems. So what's a day one problem? A day problem is standing up infrastructure, building out your the, the basic building blocks of infrastructure that you need to deploy whatever it is you're deploying, whatever application you're deploying. So that could be compute, network, storage, infrastructure, all of those good things. And we don't really play in that day one space as much. So you have great companies. First of all, cloud providers do a pretty good job of providing templates. Uh, AWS provides cloud formation. Also Terraform, there's a whole company called HashiCorp that's out there to solve those type of interesting day one problems and to stand up infrastructure. In fact, we have our own Terraform provider to help customers not only stand up their infrastructure, but stand it up with CAST kind of embedded. What we really focus on are the day two problems. So what are those problems? Those are scaling problems, performance problems, security problems, patching problems. Those are all of the problems that once you've got your thing up and running, now becomes the boring job of running your application at scale. And this is where we really find our niche and where we're really helping ourselves. I see. As always, fixing the boring problems <laughs> is very beneficial. <laughs> and it yeah, works. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, to the best of your experience, is there a scenario where a company should not be looking into uh, cloud automation anytime? So obviously, I have a biased opinion here, Francesco. And my answer is no, but it might come in different forms. And let me explain. Like, you might be a small organization, you might be prototyping something as part of a bigger company, or maybe it's just, a, and you might decide, hey, look, I just want to get something up and running quickly. Uh, I don't want to deal with infrastructure at all, right? So I want to use maybe something like a platform as a service. So in that case, it would be using something like AWS Lambda or Google Functions, which are serverless, in fact, like you don't need to deal with servers and server infrastructure and all of the nitty gritty details. And that's perfect for getting out the door and starting quickly. So in that case, you could argue, well, there's really no automation there. And say, well, there is, it's just under the covers. Like you're paying for that automation to be abstracted from you. Like Google still has to create servers for you. They still have to deploy your containers as functions. They still have to do all of the work. You're just paying for not having that headache, right? And eventually at scale, that becomes very expensive. So over time, as you adopt and start bringing your application to the point where you're really scaling, you are gonna to have to adopt automation because there's no way a human being can keep up with the number of changes on a daily basis that are required to keep a system running smoothly. Yeah, it's a good answer. I mean, I, I believe that this, of course, goes across sectors. Uh, services are getting more and more complex, more and more connected, so of course, I, I agree with you. It's quite difficult to, you know, put human beings behind this such a complexity, for sure. Um, one of the most important component that I uh, tried to, uh, well, in fact, I extracted out of the uh, of the web page of Cast AI, uh, is the cloud cost management. Um, so, what is this? Is is it a new position <laughs> or a new job or is it a tool or is it? Yeah. So, in the end, let, let me kind of give you the background um, as to how this 
it is actually a new job in many organizations. So that, you know, that epiphany that I had where I kept like having this debate with my CEO about why are our bills out of control? That's happening everywhere. That's not just a unique thing to us. Every single organization is going through the pain of understanding uh, their cloud bill. And the cloud bill is much more difficult to understand than typical on-premise IT infrastructure. It happened because of a shift in responsibility, which I just want to quickly touch on. And many of your listeners will will just, when when they'll have that eureka moment when I kind of describe it. And so there is a new job, it's called FinOps, Financial Operations. And it's a, you will see it more and more, there's a FinOps organization, there's people that are becoming specialists and professionals at it because they have to understand the technical aspect of their cloud infrastructure. And they have to understand, we're talking, and they have to understand their financial. We were talking to a government organization that specifically created a group of folks just for this FinOps position because it's so important. And Francesco, here's where the shift was. In the past, if you go back 15 years, you would have a CFO organization that would agree uh, with their leadership team that, oh, we need to invest co-location or, or, or data centers. We have to invest in that. And that's a capital expenditure. It's something we're going to amortize over a five-year period. Cool. That put all of the control and negotiation power in the finance team's hands. And then the engineering team said, look, you guys are actually holding us up from innovation. If we had access to instantiate these things at a rapid pace, we could deliver a lot more business value and innovation to the business very quickly. And the CEO, uh, the top and the board are looking at this and they're saying, absolutely, let's empower our innovators to drive business value. So the roles flipped. And all of a sudden, you have engineering teams that can order infrastructure on demand without any prerequisite for financial approval. So Francesco, what happens? Sure, you're driving innovation, but you're also building a huge amount of undisciplined fat because engineers don't care about how much money they spend. Fundamentally, it's not part of their job. Right. So you can't solve this problem by creating a people process. You can, but it's highly inefficient. The way that we approach this is we're like, okay, if we could choose the type of infrastructure required for the job in real time based on market pressure, we can automate out the cost component and ensure that customers have the lowest possible cost of infrastructure without burdening human beings from having to make those day-to-day or hour-to-hour decisions. Wow. So as a data scientist, these sounds to me like reinforcement learning. <laughs> but I might be com- completely off. I might be. Yeah. In some cases, it is. In some cases, it's a lot simpler than that, right? right? Because if you look at the data sets that you have available to you, you have usage over time. So you have seasonality data, right? Like, here's how my application behaves over weeks, months, days, hours, and so forth. And on the other side, you have market data. In other words, here's the compute infrastructure that all of these cloud providers have in inventory. And here's the current cost. There's a couple of interesting cost variables that come into play to make the decision a little bit difficult, more difficult. And then our job is really just to match or predict what infrastructure is required with what is upcoming in terms of application needs and desires. And if we can make that match correctly, we're gonna get the lowest possible cost for the infrastructure without having customers commit for long periods of time. 
and I believe there is there should be also the constraint. I believe no the the how much I want to spend at most, right? Kind of the threshold that I should never cross because uh, you know back in the days I, I believe still is the the, the there's, it still exists a tool from AWS, but many other cloud providers have this uh, cost estimator which is probably much more simplistic than what you guys do at Cast AI for sure. But, uh, you know, how do you introduce that constraint, the financial constraint on the threshold that you cannot cross? Yeah, so it's actually a little bit more interesting in Kubernetes uh, than the, and that the cost explorer and other tools just can't do because they're, they're programmed to understand core cloud resources. So here's a computer, here's a disk, here's a network. How much do those things cost and how much do those go over time? But with Kubernetes clusters, it's a multi-tenant environment, meaning you have multiple service teams within a single cluster of computers. And the idea is if you have teams sharing common infrastructure, uh, you're going to be more efficient over the long run. Right? Like if you're not using the computer for your team, I'll have the opportunity to use it for mm -hmm. my team and, or, or we get rid of it entirely. So with Kubernetes, it's a multi-tenant problem that's segmented into something called namespaces and services. So a service is like what you think it is, a microservice. And the question is, is how many resources does a microservice or a namespace consume? Uh, so it becomes a much more granular problem than what the cost explorer can do. But yes, absolutely, you should be able to block cost overruns at the cluster level. So here's a computer cluster. Um, uh, it's a cluster of computers. We don't want it to cost more than X. You should be able to have financial accountability at the namespace level and at the microservice level. And the form of overrun action could be different. For example, some organizations might say, I never want this to overrun over a certain dollar value for a particular application and just stop the bleeding as soon as it gets there. And now another organization may say, okay, look, we're not gonna impede performance of the application. We want you to raise an alert and have that go to an approval flow so that the finance team can have a discussion with the operations team and come to consensus. You're using more compute power. Is that justified through the value you're delivering to the business? So the enforcement mechanism could be different, but absolutely that stop loss has to be there. Hey, let me tell you how I stay protected while surfing the web. I use NordVPN. With NordVPN, I not only protect my data and my privacy, but I can also change my virtual location anytime I want and from more than 59 different countries. And that's really cool. I can watch pretty much all the streaming services I want regardless of where I am. And I can also use it from my phone, my iPad, my laptop and all the other computers at home. And believe me, it is fast. So grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash data science or use the code data science to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus one additional month for free, plus a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Check it out. Leon, how does this work? Like, is it a tool that is installed on-premise? Uh, is it a, a, a cloud-based service? Um, how, how does it work and how much does it cost? You know, it's always good to to understand how much does a cost analyzer cost. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. So, uh, so let me first answer the where is it installed. Right now, Cast is a SaaS service. In other words, so I'll, I anybody who wants to try this, it's really a five minute exercise. It goes in two phases. 
The first phase is you install a simple agent in your Kubernetes cluster, the small uh, shim of code. And what it's doing is it's taking snapshots of your whole environment and then sending it to our data analysis platform every 15 seconds. And we, we do some Delta work to make sure that that data is not overwhelming to egress from a cost perspective or to our backend platform. And then we immediately produce a cost analysis report that tells you, here's what we think your waste is, and here's how we think the configuration of your cluster can change to reduce your costs. And that's where you get the 50%. On average, people are getting 50% better on that first phase of analysis. That component is free forever. In other words, we want as many people to run that thing as long as they want. And, and even if they want to take their, our recommendations manually, God bless. We would love for you to do that and not pay us a thing for the service. And here's the reason, uh, Francesco, and you'd appreciate this from a data science and data engineering perspective. The more clusters I can see in my backend platform, the better my algorithms get, right? So if I only have two people using the service, I learn so well. If I have 100,000 people using the service, it does a much better job at prediction over the long run. And it also creates an interesting barrier to entry mode for us as a business because like for example on your computer at home or at work do you have two antiviruses installed no that's that's ridiculous why would you have two of the same thing so by having a, a, a foothold as a cost analyzer in your cluster even if we're offering that service at no cost it's a very good mode or protection for our business so that's phase one does that make sense as kind of like the first step it does, yes. Uh, well, I've, before you move on, I, I have another question related to the agent. Privacy issues, privacy concerns, like this thing is sending data somewhere else. This is quite um, you know, sensitive in the sense that um, is that agent disclosing the type of business that I'm running or the type of servers that I'm running? Yeah, so typically the data is anonymized. There's no customer data. There's no end customer data in the flow. The agent's read-only can't affect the cluster in any way. What it's really doing is it's sending container resource usage information and the services that's associated with. We strip out any type of sensitive information like secrets, database password, like all of that stuff is immediately stripped out. In fact, we can provide you some insights into what you're not protecting adequately, which we'll talk about kind of a later, later stage. The is If there are some service names in there that can kind of reveal the sense your business. Like for example, if you're an ad service and you have ad revenue prediction service in the name of the service, yeah, we're gonna see that because we need a handle to right. pin it on. Otherwise we can't give you valuable reporting data back, um, but it's minimal. It's just the name of the services and the name of the containers. Now some customers, 99% of customers have no problem with that. The 1% do uh, is, that's why I want to answer the, the on-prem part next. We are working on a version of this service that is disconnected. So there are some government agencies, for example, that can't be connected to the internet at all. Like so your privacy concern is a valid one, but then there are more physical laws of physics concern where, hey, we our data centers aren't connected. We can't even send you back data even if we wanted to. And so we're working on a version of our platform that's actually going to run inside of our customer's infrastructure where we have to send models to them periodically, but it's a controlled send. In other words, we deposit it somewhere, they're able to scan and detect for vulnerabilities, and then they're able to move those models to their to our infrastructure that's dedicated for us over time. Interesting. So basically moving the computation 
on the premise and you know avoiding all the other you know the data sharing uh, completely in fact that's going to be next exactly cool leon why now and why you <laughs> i mean sure. i i believe that the question is more like is there anything out there that resembles this uh, this approach this methodology and this idea in the first place or uh, was there kind of a technology shift to to enable all this? Yeah, there were multiple technology shifts, and we are absolutely going to have competition. We'll have competition from the cloud providers themselves, and it's validating because if we had no, if we had zero competitors or zero folks trying to solve the problem, we wouldn't be in the right direction. Um, so it's 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 rewarding to see our customers are validating the problem is huge and also competition is validating. And we have a slightly different approach to the problem than others do. But let me kind of give you the, lands, the landscape. In version one, what I'll call V1 of cost management, there were a bunch of legacy companies that were just doing reporting. Here's your bill, let me break it down for you by all the tags that you have or labels for, Google's, for Google Cloud. And then we'll give you some governance tools and a UI to kind of predict where it's going very similar to the cost explorer in AWS. So that was kind of V1 of the problem. And I think most customers found some comfort in visibility, but very little actual benefit, very little actual benefit. So Francesco, what were the cloud answers to, hey, my bill is running too high? I think this is a really important uh, point for viewers to understand. The cloud provider's answer is, hey, we will give you a discount, but you need to commit to us for a period of time. One year, two years, three years, four years, the longer you commit, the more money you pay down, the better your discount will be. And that'll get up to 60% discount over the long run. Well, that's a huge problem for us because that's moving negotiation back to the way it was 10 years ago when you were buying co-location space in the data center. That's the opposite of what the cloud promises. But organizations are more than ready to do this right now because there is no alternative. And what we're saying is those reservations, there's, sometimes they're called savings plans in AWS's case, sometimes they're called committed spend. Those are evil concepts. They're necessarily evil for some organizations, but from our perspective, they're fundamentally evil. And we want to move customers away from that evil. We want them to have the freedom of just-in-time on-demand exploration of capacity without the need to pay a whole bunch of money up front. So, one competitor is the influence of the cloud provider saying, we're going to lock you in, but we'll give you a discount for that lock-in. That's one bucket of competitors. Mm -hmm. The other bucket of competitors is what the cloud providers are doing themselves. So like, for example, um, uh, Google offers a product for Kubernetes called Autopilot, where they say, hey, we will just take care of the infrastructure for you. You'll pay a premium for it. It's pretty expensive, but we'll, you know, Within limits, we will just take care of it for you. And we find ourselves running significantly cheaper than Google Autopilot, which is a great validator of our um, of our technology. And then the only other company that's kind of in the same space, they do things slightly differently, is a company that was acquired by NetApp. It's called Spot.io. Spot.io, it's now part of the NetApp family. And it fundamentally becomes an innovation over distribution problem, right? Like we're continuing... You know, we're at a very early stage of our innovation lifecycle. We have so many amazing things that we want to bring to market. And then these, the cloud providers have obviously awesome distribution. 
We ultimately think that our solution is going to help them with cloud adoption and migration in the long run. And I think they will see that as well. So that's kind of the competitive landscape. There's, we don't think it's a zero sum game. We think we're all collectively growing the pie, but everybody is pushing in the direction of, you've got to automate your solution for it to be effective. So how much does this cost? So it's- I'm we pragmatic think about it, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's, a, it's a usage-based model. So there's, a, a, you know, the sales team will obviously give you a much better answer than, than I will, Francesco, but it's a usage-based model. It's based on the number of CPU cores that we provision for you. So based on your compute usage. Um, and here's the rough idea. We try to target between eight to 10% of your savings. So your ROI is always significantly positive. Otherwise, what's the point of installing our solution sure. if you're not getting a net benefit? Yeah, makes perfect sense. I'm sure that you have some tips for you know, the DevOps and the, the, the data engineers out there for sure. Uh, regarding regardless of the sector where they are and pretty much regardless on the the size because you know when you speak in percentages you know eight to ten percent for a startup it's, it's good money as well as for a large corporation i mean uh so cutting costs in percentage points is something that i i really like uh it's it's clear so if you had to uh give some tips let's say to uh for managing cloud costs for the three typical sizes of companies out there, namely startups, SMEs, and large corporations, what would your, your tips be? Yeah, so I'm gonna give some tips that are kind of like cast related and others that are not cast related, right? So if you think about, um, so tip number one, think about reserved instances or savings plans as a measure of last resorts. Like that's not, that should not be the default that you jump to to figure out how to save money. That should be kind of like the last lemon you squeeze uh, before you exhaust all, all other possibilities. Um, the second piece is that egress cost is a significant cost of all cloud environments. And so just for those who don't understand what I mean by egress, when you're using a cloud environment, you don't pay anything for data coming into your environment. So that's ingress. You do pay for any bytes that are going out. And I wanna just give you a perspective of the order of magnitude of the problem, because I think it's criminal in some ways. It's, it's really like, it's really a oligopoly type scenario that, that the cloud uh, service providers are running. So if you think about data going out, Amazon charges you rough, I'm gonna pick on them, but they're all just as bad. Uh, roughly 10 cents per gigabyte of data going out. So they pay well, the cost of goods sold on that, is they don't pay per gigabyte, they pay per megabit per second. So it's a slightly different measure when they buy the fiber optics. They're paying under $1 per megabit per second. If you do the math, and I've done it many times, it's something like 32X. They're charging you 32X wow. cost of data going out. Why are they doing that? Not for the gross margin, all the gross margin is, is fantastic. They're doing it because they want your data to stay in their cloud. Because imagine if your data can be anywhere now, sure. What's you? What's to stop you from using the cloud provider next door for a cost savings, right? So the egress costs are high as a barrier to exit. This is a moat to prevent your data from leaving. Because imagine now you have 20 terabytes of data to export. You're going to think twice. So luckily, there's a, a breed of companies, and we are not affiliated with them whatsoever. There's a breed of companies that are taking the object store protocol. So the S3 protocol 
and they're making it available with no egress costs. So there's a couple of them. Uh, Wasabi is one that I really like. I would highly recommend you check it out. And Wasabi basically allows you to create an S3 compatible storage bucket, store as much data as you want there, and you pay nothing for the ingress, nothing for the egress. And if you get a data center that's side by side with your region, you could be storing all of your training data at zero egress cost, which means you could use Google GPUs one day and AWS <laughs> GPUs the next day, and you literally don't have to worry about data lock-in or, or vendor lock-in from a data egress perspective. Again, this is not something that we do directly, but this is something that I always recommend for customers to look at when they when they are looking at one of their major costs, which is storage or bucket storage. Right? And then the third tip I would give you guys is think outside of the box in terms of inventory for compute. So like if you think about the average DevOps engineers, they have their three or four go-to instance types that they use all of the time. C5A, extra large. That's the instance type that I use on Amazon. It's worked for me in the past. I never want to deviate from it. Well, one of the Freakonomic discoveries we made at CAST is by having a dynamic inventory and making our clusters heterogeneous, meaning we mix and match the computers that we put into a cluster in any given moment, we're often able to find severely discounted instances which are not in high demand. And I'll give you an example. Um, we, you know, like there are AWS as instances that are, uh, that have SSDs on them. They have uh, advanced network cards and a few other bells and whistles that have nothing to do with what you need. You may never need those SSDs, but when you buy those instances on what's called a spot price, I mean, and I'll explain the spot price in a second, they often end up being cheaper than the base model. So you get a Ferrari for the price of a Toyota, why not take the Ferrari? And that's what I mean by think broadly on inventory. Think outside of the box. And that's what our platform does. And this is one that we do provide direct benefit for. When we look at the containers that are being instantiated in your cluster, we say, ah, okay, this is what we need to provide for. What's the cheapest possible market price we can get at the moment? And often, like, you'll see these uh, INF1 instances from AWS, which are infrared processors. They're designed for inference. Uh, you need to have an SDK and a bunch of other things to take advantage of them. They're way cheaper than the base model. So like take advantage of the price when you can, regardless of the feature set that's on the computer. Yeah. It's like trading, in fact. It's it's becoming more like a stock exchange. Like it is. Buy low, buy low sell high. Yeah. But it, um, it, to be honest with you, Leon, I found myself in that situation of uh, uh, you know, without mentioning the the, the cloud provider, but you will probably guess it. Uh, you know, when it was time to move data indeed from one database to the other uh, and from one database to a machine, so, oh, this, gonna, this is gonna cost us a fortune. Let's spin up a new EC2, if you know what I mean, <laughs> in the cloud so that we can avoid the transfer outside of the cloud, right? So that was a typical, I mean, it resonates with me. Um, it happened a few times already. Um, and I'm not a data engineer, so I believe that this is kind of the one of the biggest problems and probably the smartest, uh, you know, solution that cloud providers have found to to lock people in. Right. I'll give you a, even a worse problem than that. I have customers. So you know how uh, uh, cloud providers have these things called availability zones in the region, and the idea for those availability zones is to make your uh, application uh, disaster tolerant. So if one data center 
in that region goes down, the other two are there and your application stays up and running. I have customers that are refusing to use multiple availability zones because of the data transfer cost between those AZs. They're, they're saying we would rather take the risk of going down in the single AZ than the cost it would take to run. So the business model is clearly broken. These guys have to do something about that. And I believe 2020, if, you know, since we're talking at the, the top of the year, uh, I believe 2022 is going to be the year for that shift. Cloud providers are going to realize that for migration to occur at the same rate, they are going to have to do something about egress. And, and it's going to be orders of magnitude, not just a couple of percentage points of discount. Wow. Yeah, you have a point and a big one, actually. All right. Well, um, we are approaching the end of the show, but before we say bye, <laughs> I would definitely ask you one of the most classical questions that I ask to the to the guests of this show, which is kind of philosophical slash visionary. <laughs> um, what do you think about the future? Like there are more and more of these tools, and I hope Cast AI makes it there um, and puts some order into the, the chaos of the cloud uh, when it comes to costs, of course. Uh, but as uh, as soon as these tools become more reliable and efficient, what's going to happen to the, let's say, to the DevOps engineer or to the data engineer or to the engineer in general? You know, this is happening already in data science. Um, many of the tasks that data scientists were, were doing manually have been automated by amazing tools. So I expect this to happen also in your field. That's a great question, Francesca, and I'll, I'll kind of, Give you some analogies. Uh, first of all, I have a philosophy, like a, some, a mentor many years ago gave me this piece of advice, work to work yourself out of a job and you'll never be out of a job. So that, that, is, the, that is the philosophy. I'll, like I'm always trying to make myself obsolete and as a result, you know, just leveling up to the next, uh, next hard challenge. I don't think human beings need to be doing these low level um, pieces that can be handled by automation. We need to elevate our thinking, right? To become more creative and use the more creative parts of our mind. Oh, let me give you a concrete example from history. You know, when, when computers first came out, everyone had to code in the lowest level languages possible. So it, very initially it was machine language and assembler. Then we said, well, that's a waste of time. Let's program in C. Great, now C moves to Python and you're up leveling your the level of abstraction, the same thing is gonna happen for cloud infrastructure. There's no reason to be down in the guts and the bowels of the infrastructure. You can up level your thought process because the truth is we're so short on human beings right now in our industry, across all technology industries, not just DevOps. We need more people, we need more uh, women, we need more of everybody to be involved. And the, the role of automation is going to be to unlock creative thinking in the field as opposed to getting rid of jobs. That's never been a concern of mine for a second. I agree with you 100%. And uh, I call it evolution. It's the, the natural evolution of, uh, of jobs, of positions and technologies that, of course, create new things and replaces old ones. <laughs> as simple as Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're in, a, in agreement there. And it, while it can be a controversial topic, I don't think it needs to be. I think it just needs to be the acknowledgement that we're always going to use better and evolving tools. And in some cases, machines can make decisions faster and smarter than humans. And let's make sure that those machines are programmed the right way to make those right decisions. 
Leon, it was nice to have you here on the show. I'm uh, pretty sure that the listeners of the podcast will enjoy as much as I did uh, having this conversation with you. I renew the invitation to our official channel on the Discord. Uh, you will find the link in the show notes of this episode, together with the other references about uh, Cast AI and all the other things about DevOps and Dev engineers and uh, data scientists that we have been discussed, and that uh, Leon Cooperman uh, wants, of course, to to share with us. Uh, that was Leon, co-founder and CTO at Cast AI. Thank you very much. Thanks, Francesca. Great speaking to you. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.